You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hello, everyone. My name is Susie Squire, president of the Retail and Hospitality ISAC, and this is the RHISAC podcast. In our last episode, Dan Holden from Big Commerce talked about client-side attacks and determining fraud tolerance in this world of crazy current events. As part of the crazy current events, we've all heard stories about how difficult it is getting insurance or how insurance premiums have increased. So today, I'm going to be chatting with a cyber insurance expert, Justin Huff, financial services security executive at Accenture, who is going to give us some tips for lowering our insurance premiums. But first, I'm here with Michael Daniel, President and CEO of the Cyber Threat Alliance. Fun fact, Michael and I first met when he was Special Assistant to the President and Cybersecurity Coordinator under President Obama, and I was working with the Trade Association and building the then RSISC. And I actually got to go maybe not into the whole war room, but at least a, a portion of it, which was really cool. I don't know if you remember that day or not, Michael. I do. I do, actually. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you for being here. So listen, I gave a little bit of that, but could you start off by telling us a bit about yourself and then about the Cyber Threat Alliance? Sure. So I've been active in cybersecurity for about 15 20 years now, but I started my career in the federal government working for the Office of Management and Budget in the national security area. So I come at cybersecurity from a resourcing and sort of economic background, if you will, policy and economics and resources. And I started getting into cyber in the the mid-2000s when I was working a lot with the U.S. intelligence community. And then from 2012 to 2017, I served as President Obama's cybersecurity advisor, as you mentioned. And then after I left government, after the end of the Obama administration, I moved to a a nonprofit called the Cyber Threat Alliance. And what we do is we're a membership association, and we focus on enabling cybersecurity providers, which we deliberately define broadly, to share threat intelligence with each other and to do that at speed at scale in an automated fashion but also to do it at a very human level, at the analytic level of finished intelligence and building that trust community. So that's really what CTA is is all about. Interesting, uh, pulling everybody together. Uh, was it a bit of a struggle getting everyone to buy into that concept? Well, you know, it's it's interesting. I've always said that nobody ever says that information sharing is bad, right? Like you don't you don't brief people and they're like, oh, that's a terrible idea. We shouldn't share. <laughs> like nobody ever says that, right? But actually getting people to do it, to actually carry out the sharing and yeah. to prioritize it and to make it occur day in, day out at a you know high level of quality, that part actually really is hard. And so figuring out how to make CTA work from a, if you will, sort of an organizational standpoint and to make it sustainable over the long term, those were the parts that were actually hard. Yeah. And so how many companies roughly are a part of the CTA? So right now there are 34, and they're headquartered in about 11 different countries. So we're not just U.S.-based. We're, I mean, that's the preponderance of our members. But, yeah, we have member companies. I mean, and many of our member companies are global, but even the headquarters are in 11 different countries now. It's a great group, and you've done some great briefings that we've been fortunate enough to be a part of. So thank you for that. So we all know that ransomware is high on the list of threats, obviously, these days, and in the thoughts of Congress which passed the Cyber Incident Reporting for Critical Infrastructure Act of 2022. And I know the CTA is focusing efforts to assist CISA 
in implementing this legislation. Can you tell us a little bit about the Ransomware Incident Reporting Network project? Sure. So that actually grew out of the Ransomware Task Force, which the Institute for Security and Technology organized last year. And one of the recommendations from that task force's report was that we needed more information about ransomware to be moved across the ecosystem, that really we needed better information about what is actually happening with ransomware incidents, you know, how frequent really, so how often are they occurring, what kind of organizations are experiencing them. And then we also needed more information to be shared out to organizations about what they could do about ransomware and what are the basic steps they could use to reduce the likelihood that they'll become a victim of ransomware. Mm -hmm. And so that was the idea behind the Ransomware Incident Reporting Network, was to increase that flow of information. Since the passage of the legislation, it seemed to make sense to us that the first place we would focus the work of that network, if you will, the group of companies and organizations and people that have really focused on that issue is to think about how to actually structure the implementing regulations well and to provide input to CISA as it drafts those regulations. Because the law lays out some basic things, and it says essentially, if you experience a cyber incident, to be defined, and you're in critical infrastructure, which is loosely defined but still needs to be defined by CISA, then you've got to report to be defined. In other words, like the, <laughs> there's a lot that is in that law that is subject to the implementing regulations that mm. CISA has to put together. And so it has a, quite a long time to do that, like two years, I think. So mm. I don't think they'll necessarily take that full time, but there's a lot to unpack in that legislation. And we really want to help CISA get it right. We've been struggling to get incident reporting legislation for 10 or 15 years now, and we want to make sure that this version both provides useful information so that it's broad enough and covers enough entities that it actually collects useful information for decision makers. But at the same time, you're asking organizations to report during a very stressful, bad time. And so the reporting process needs to be structured in such a way as to minimize the burden on those entities and to really stage it in such a way that it doesn't impose additional burdens on them during a really stressful time. Mm -hmm. One of the TBDs that you brought up was the covered entities. I know they mentioned, obviously, critical infrastructure. But as you said, there's still a lot of question about that. So how could this impact retail and hospitality companies and, and other companies that may not realize that they may fall under this covered entities? Yeah, so I think everybody should be prepared for the fact that while the immediate version of this legislative requirement is focused on entities that are providing services in one of those 16 critical infrastructure sectors, if you also look at what the Securities and Exchange Commission is doing, they're talking yeah. about making incident reporting you know, mandatory for any public company, right? I think the writing is on the wall in the sense that most entities should begin to think about the fact that they're going to have to do some sort of incident reporting down the road, if not immediately, then, you know, in the future. And it may also be that, for example, like once this reporting process is in place, 
your insurance provider may actually require you. Just like for a car accident or something, you got to if you want to use the car insurance, you got to file a police report, right? Mm-hmm. Or if you have a theft, you've got to file the police report. And you could see a similar thing with an incident in cyberspace with insurance. Mm-hmm. So I think that even if the requirements are not going to immediately apply, that you know it could be the case that it does in the future through different means. And so everyone's mm-hmm. paying attention to it. That's a good point. Yeah, and I think the other thing is that, you know, even in the retail and hospitality industry, if you think about some of the functions that they carry out under certain conditions, you could see them becoming considered critical. Yeah. Uh, Like lodging services during a natural disaster, right, suddenly become very critical for housing first responders and housing, you know, people who have been displaced by a hurricane or a fire or something, and so – well, it's a good point. And we, yeah. we saw who was considered the essential workers during the pandemic, yep. even grocery and, you know, things like that. So you're right. Yep, that's right. Yeah. Yep. Good point. So of the three TBDs, the covered entities, the what to report, and the I think the last one was the timing, what are you focusing on or are you focusing on all three? Yeah, we're thinking about all three, although I will say that probably that we will spend the least time on the covered entity. Yeah. Set because I think our line of argumentation is going to be that that should be as broad as possible, which I know some organizations and things will disagree with. But from the data perspective, you want to collect as much data as possible, right? So you want it to apply as broadly as possible. Where I really think we're going to try to spend some time is thinking about how do you define an incident so that you really aren't reporting every time you turn around so that it's, in fact, actually based on something that has gone wrong significantly in -hmm. some way. Some control has failed in your environment and something bad has happened. And I know that sounds simple to say. It'll be probably run to several thousand words to actually define at the end of the day. But that's the kind of thing where you need to start. Because the truth is we actually want to exclude most things from this report. But, you you know, so you want to find that line. And then I think also thinking about how to structure the reporting requirement and thinking about how you – structure it in a couple of different ways. One is by size. I would say that the level and depth and uh, detail of reporting requirement that we impose on my favorite small business example, Flo's Flower Shop, (laughs) uh, you know, what we're going to say for Flo's Flower Shop, not that she would be critical infrastructure, but some, you know, small critical infrastructure provider, right? To me, that should be very limited. You know, it's a very limited five questions, right, small bits of information. What I would say, in my view, that we could impose on a large bank or a giant healthcare conglomerate, like that's a very different set of requirements because they have people and technical experts and attorneys and other things that are specifically their job is to do this kind of thing, right? So the other thing is timing. In other words, just because the law says that you have to report within 72 hours doesn't mean that has to be the final word. And that the reporting requirement should also allow for continuous updates and engagement. Uh Because certainly one of the things that I, you know, I had several rules that I learned when I was the cybersecurity coordinator. But one of them was their first report about a cybersecurity incident is wrong. Like just whatever, no matter how you slice it, the first report about it is wrong. It's wrong in some (laughs) way. Either the number of, either the actual, anything about it, honestly, could potentially end up needing to be updated down the road. And so while it is important and the desire and the need to get early reporting is clear, 
everybody also should understand that that also means that some of those initial reports are going to be wrong. Mm-hmm. And therefore, they will need to be updated as we learn more. Oh, it turned out that they didn't actually access this thing over here, but they accessed this part of our network over here. So, in fact, the number of people who were affected was actually much smaller or much bigger. And not be penalized for that. Correct. And not be change. penalized, not be penalized for that change, because that's not malice aforethought. That's they've learned more. And you always learn more as you do the the forensics. So. So that reporting formats need to be flexible in terms of size, and they also need to change over time. And what we can expect in terms of a report 72 hours after an incident is very different than what we can expect three months later when you've had time to do the full forensics and that sort of thing. How is this going? How's the reception? How's the work that you guys are putting together? So, I mean, so far, I would say that CISA is still getting its act together in terms of how it wants to run the process. And it's not surprising because basically they have to go through a very formal rulemaking process. Mm. And that's not a process that CISA itself is overly familiar with. And any of your listeners who have gone through that process know that it is quite intricate, right? And there's a lot of gates and hurdles Mm. So it is not going to be a rapid process. Yeah. So getting that situated first is really going to be key, and then the rest can kind of flow from getting that process set up. Yes, that's right. And, I, you know, the first thing they'll have to eventually do is get a notice of proposed rulemaking out. And even that is challenging just to get the initial, like, we're going to do a rule. And, you know, to get that out the door, that is a non-trivial task. And just given the level of interest that will surround this particular topic, it's important for them to actually do it right. And in my view, we've lived without this requirement for long enough that, you know, I would rather them take a few months and get it right than try to rush it. We're talking about something we want to endure, and we want to endure for an extended period of time. So while I think they should be expeditious, I also don't want them to rush. So. The fun, fun of policymaking in Washington, D.C. Yes. (laughs) Well, thank you for joining us today. Anything else regarding CTA or your work that you kind of want to share with our listeners before we sign off here? What I would just say to anybody who is thinking about cybersecurity and is concerned about it, you can do something to improve your cybersecurity, right? You are not stuck. No one can protect themselves 100%. But there are things you can do to reduce your risk. And so that's why I think organizations like the RHISAC and others are so important in the different industries, because you can really help with getting that word out and helping people realize that there are things they can do to improve their cybersecurity. I mean, that's a really important message right now, because I think a lot of people feel very overwhelmed Mm -hmm. and very almost fatalistic about it. And you don't have to be. So you won't find many cybersecurity people that are optimists, but I will say that it's not, it's also not hopeless either. The old saying, misery loves company, to be able to share your pain points with peers is, it is a load off, you know? Yes. And then you get the support. Always great talking to you. Yes. Uh, Really appreciate it. Uh, Love being a part of the CTA and the, the briefings that you guys provide. It's great. So I encourage people to check them out. And thanks again for your time today. Thanks, Susie. Thank you for having me. We're going to take a quick break and hear a message from our sponsor, Fortinet. Stick around, because after that, Justin Hoff from Accenture will provide tips for lowering your cyber insurance premium. 
and give us a little information on why insurance rates are so high. Today's show is brought to you by Fortinet. Fortinet provides retailers with top-rated cybersecurity solutions covering the expanding attack surface. Advantages include centralized visibility and management, lower TCO, and top performance. Proven threat protection and seamless fabric integration delivers better, faster response to attacks across the entire network, including point-of-sale systems and other devices carrying sensitive information. And Fortinet helps simplify compliance with PCI DSS and other regulations. As digital innovation and the need to provide always-on customer experiences drive network transformation, retail cybersecurity has become more vital. It's essential to have a security partner that can provide simplified security and networking to keep customers' data safe and enable a superior consumer experience. For more information, contact the Fortinet team at retail at fortinet.com. Welcome back, everybody. I'm here with Justin Huff, Financial Services Security Executive at Accenture. So, Justin, do you want to start off by telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure, absolutely. And first, thank you so much for having me. Everyone, my name is Justin Huff. I run Accenture's insurance security business for North America. And previously, I was focused on financial services clients across insurance, banking, and cap markets within the Midwest. So on a, on a daily basis, I'm partnering with C-level executives to assist with security strategy, operations, and also you know, complex transformations across security domains, whether that be migration to the cloud, standing up a new capability, you know, investments, or acquisitions. So it's a, it's, it's a great gig. I, I have a really good time, and uh, it's always changing and, and a nice challenge. So. Yeah, sounds like it. Sounds like you have a lot going on in there. But in that position, you are kind of in a unique position to see both sides of cyber insurance and what's going on during this tumultuous time in that area both the insurance companies and with the companies being insured. So can you provide us with your thoughts, your assessment on the cyber insurance landscape right now and, and what are the, some of the trends that you're seeing? Of course. I mean, that's absolutely correct. You know, given my role now focusing on insurance clients, I see both sides of the fence, right, and the pain points or risks that they both face. So on one hand, you have the insurer dealing with clients or customers with evolving IT environments, They're, they may be migrating to the cloud, you know, obviously work from home with all the COVID going on, and mobile workforces, which is come and gone. I think we, we've seen that transformation happen already. But you're dealing with this as an insurer, given it brings in different challenges with security, different ways to secure, and different environments to secure. In addition to that, and even more important, is the highly volatile threat landscape where zero-day vulnerabilities are commonplace. Third-party risk is more pervasive than ever. And obviously, we see in the paper every day an increased number of cyber breaches are just happening. It's no longer I'm going to steal your PII. It's I'm going to steal your PII, and then I'm going to lock up your business so you can't do business, and then you're going to pay me in terms of ransomware. Right? Those are getting more and more sophisticated. So all of that said, the assurer needs to accurately underwrite a policy to avoid tanking their insurance company. So they're taking all these things to account. And in some cases, you know, we're seeing a result that's going to impact the customer. Others, you know, we're seeing cyber insurance companies or sorry, insurance companies just no longer offer cyber insurance. And then on the other hand, you have the to be insured or the customer. And as a result of what I just mentioned, unfortunately, they're bearing the brunt of all this. The insurance premiums are going up. 
in some cases 50 to 150 percent. Coverage is being reduced, and then tighter terms and conditions are being put in place to protect the insurer. Now, in addition to that, there's also additional scrutiny and increased scrutiny around the underwriting process. So it's almost an additional audit you have to go through in conversation to just be able to get the insurance, right? And you're not even guaranteed that insurance, especially if you've already had a breach. It can be very tough to get the underwrite. So in many cases, you're having customers asking questions of where is the business's money best spent? Is it in a policy? Is it elsewhere? Do I double down on my controls? Do I reinvest and self-insure? Or And the other question is, how does a spend relate to the financial risk threshold of the business? There needs to be a decision there up front to see what, what is needed and how much spend should be put in place to, to protect the business. Well. Yeah, that, that's exactly what we're hearing from our members. Uh, we had a conversation with the CISOs last year, and, that, and that's exactly what it was. Is it better to self-insure and, and put that money there or invest in controls because uh, the policies are, are increasing so much. So what kind of recommendations do you have for particularly the retail and hospitality community and what they're dealing with with the high premiums or even, you know, the fact that their insurers are, are kind of backing out of the business yeah. and also in how they're handling, like you said, these close to audit questionnaires that they're being asked complete in order to, to get the insurance. Yeah, and and to our prior point, I would say, you know, first and foremost, and kind of table stakes is there has to be an analysis by the business. You know, it's a business decision on how much the premium is going to be and what they're willing to pay as it relates to the bottom line and the financial risk thresholds. So that needs to be taken into account. There's no point in paying for a policy that doesn't make sense on paper. Now, in terms of recommendations, right? I I think of cyber insurance just like life insurance. If you're a non-smoker who exercises regularly, has good blood work, you're going to get lower premiums and better coverage. So if I translate good blood work into IT, then it's pretty simple. The the goal is mature your organization's security capability, get healthier. Mm -hmm. So, And to get even more specific, I'll reference some of the examples I gave earlier around the pain points of both sides. You had first the, the evolving IT environment. Right. Whether you know, you're on a cloud journey with yourself or a partner, just make sure that partner can see end to end and embed security throughout the process. Get a second set of eyes on any transformation for configuration changes. Ensure your environment is secure, right? especially going through these transformations. The second was around threat landscape. The more intel you can ingest and make a part of your organization, the better. Right. So engage a threat intel provider. Incorporate this into your SDLC incorporated into your DevSecOps process in your SOC and all of your operations. For example, Accenture, we actually acquired iDefense a few years back, and we've incorporated iDefense and all of their threat intel into all of our managed security services. So if you come and you want us to provide your security operations center as a managed service, that already has threat intel built into it based on our, our acquisition of iDefense. So so my recommendation there is engage the threat intel provider, gather as much intel as you can, and make it relevant, and then action as soon as possible when you do come across a vulnerability or you see activity happening in dark web and things of that nature so you can get ahead of it. And then, yeah. Yeah. And then, and then lastly, I think we talked about, you know, there's scrutiny on the underwriting process. So, you know, prepare for these discussions, right? Underwriters don't speak the same language as IT, 
and prepare for it as if it's an audit. Get ready, practice with your teams, make sure you have all the information. And, and if you need help there, get someone to come in and assess your environment. They are going to look for your company's profile and maturity publicly on the dark web, and they're going to come in and scrutinize your internal controls and your operations and your processes and procedures to see how you would act in, in the event and, and how you how quickly you can stay resilient, keep the lights on, and lock things down, right? So you can do this internally. You can hire a third party, do an assessment. You can do adversarial simulations. I know at Accenture we do this with, with our partners all the time, and they get stronger and stronger because we mimic an actual hacker. You give us an objective, we can siphon money out of your organization, we can steal PII, and we can act like that bad actor and spar with you. So there's a lot of ways to do this, but I would say, you know, just to summarize, mature your capability, and the more mature you are, the farther that's going to go with the underwriter, obviously making you healthier, and in turn, getting a better coverage. So, and I know a lot of companies who maybe haven't had breaches still experience increases because of the threat landscape and things. Do you see this leveling off at any point in the future? Do you see it coming to some sort of a equilibrium where, to your point, it's the insurers obviously have to cover their stakes, but on the company side, they're not going to be going in every year to another 150% increase or whatever the case may be. I see it continually growing. For the time being, it has to level off at some point. And, and obviously, cyber insurance is just not one single insurer. There are different levels of reinsurance and, and different levels of insurance kick in at different parts of the process. But uh, I think the better visibility that the underwriter can get, the more information they can get around what's happening within the customer's environment, the more apt they are to standardizing and normalizing premiums. In a perfect world, I would love to say, let's create a platform where we ingest all the data from your organization and it gets analyzed and it can give you a health check on the environment and it can give you a, a lens into you know, how strong your company is in terms of security. But that is far from the case today. I, I, don't, I don't know any organizations that want to give up their information unless they have to. So it's it's a it's kind of a catch twenty two at this point. So to answer your question, I see it increasing, but it's going to hit hit a point where that analysis being done by the business is going to come to a head. And if it just doesn't make financial sense to invest in a policy, that is going to impact premiums and how they may or may not continue to rise. Mm-hmm. So a little bit of somber news. The not fun is going to continue for a while, according to what you think, unfortunately. Hopefully there will be a leveling off. But in the meantime, it seems that just keep working to improve and mature your capabilities. I mean, it's the right? best thing you can do is be proactive. Um, yeah. the, more, the more you know about yourself, the better yeah. you can articulate it to your underwriter. And honestly, protect yourself in the world that is being attacked and under cyber warfare daily. Yeah. Uh, that logic can be applied to so many parts of our lives, being proactive. You know, right now when there's a, a number put to it and businesses involved, investment is a good idea in terms of maturity. You'll see a return. Great. Well, you know, Justin, thanks so much for joining us on this important topic and giving us your and Accenture's experience in this area to just let us know how we see things continuing to evolve and what's going to happen. And really appreciate your providing us with your thoughts today. Of course, happy to be here. And if, if you or any of your members are interested in any more information, feel free to reach out. I'd be happy to 
support. We will. We will. Thank you so much and have a great rest of the day. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of the RHIZ podcast. Stay tuned for our next episode later this month, where Nick Light interviews Chris Cox and Tony Hunt from Operation Safe Escape. Have a great day.